honor to have two of the authors of these books, um, Marco Brunemeyer and Harold James, and also joined by Marco Budi from DG ECFIN, who is going to be the discussion here. Uh, I was telling uh, Marcus and Harold this morning how, what a big book this is. This is truly a, sort of a, you know, a historical book on, on these issues. And I was saying that when I started uh, sort of uh, thinking about how I'm going to read this book, the first thing I did is I looked at the, at the index. And it's fascinating to see the types of the breadth of the book and the number of names that appear here. Some surprising, some not so surprising. But one of the surprising names that appears here, and perhaps you can say something about this, is a name which I didn't think would be related to the issue, and that is Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about this in your presentation. But let me just go straight into the presentation. Harold, I believe you go first. Right. Yes. Uh, Thank you, and well, welcome. Then, thanks so much. It's, it's really wonderful to be here with you and uh, uh, to be able to talk about this, this book. Um, indeed, uh, we have some, uh, a very wide cast of characters in, in this book. And maybe that's a reflection of the origins of the book, because I think we should say something about that, uh, that this started quite a long time ago in the early phases of the European debt crisis. Uh, when Jean-Pierre Landau, uh, the former uh, deputy governor of the Banque de France, was visiting Princeton, and we were talking about the, the crisis, Marcus and Jean-Pierre in particular were talking about the crisis, and then um, we thought then over the course of time that it would be good to have an account, but particularly have an account that takes into account really different perspectives and uh, different national perspectives in part because um, uh, Jean-Pierre is clearly from France, um, Marcus Brunemeyer uh, has taught in Princeton for a long time but is originally from Germany um, and I've also been in Princeton for quite a bit uh, but you can probably tell from the accent uh, that uh, I'm a citizen of a country that's still a member of the European Union. Um, uh, still a member of the European Union. Um, uh, and uh, we're also from different perspectives. Uh, that uh, uh, Marcus is somebody whose work you, you certainly know, who's contributed a lot to financial theory and uh, to the, the, the study of bubbles um, uh, <coughs> from a very theoretical perspective. Um, Jean-Pierre is a policymaker who spent his, his career in the Banque de France and the International Monetary Fund. Um, I'm an economic and financial historian, uh, so I look at things from a kind of historical perspective. And history and economics, as well as policy questions, are really all part of the ingredients of um, this, uh, this book. And um, uh, what we thought from the beginning uh, was that the European struggles are often characterized as clashes of interest, uh, but they, they are to some extent that, but they're above all clashes of interest that are thought of through the lens of particular ideas. And if we have one contribution to make in the book, it's to try to explain how those ideas are different in different countries so that people can understand each other more. And if you understand where the point of departure is in the case of an argument, uh, then you're in a better position uh, to think of solutions. And at the end uh, of our 
introduction, uh, Marcus is also going to think about uh, some solutions that we're, we're envisaging. Um, we cast uh, this discussion in terms of a <coughs> debate that fundamentally takes place between France and Germany. And uh, that's to some extent a kind of intellectual shorthand because it's not that the French are the only people who are putting forward French positions and it's not that the Germans are the only people who are putting forward German positions and it's clearly also not that they're the only two countries in the EU or even the only two important countries in the EU in terms of population or GDP, uh, Italy, the UK are not dissimilar and in, indeed until 1990 uh, very, very similar in terms of size and it's only in 1990 with the unification that Germany got much, much larger. Um, but uh, we thought of this um, primarily because of the kind of narrative that we tell about the crisis. Um, that is that it's a crisis in which the, the story of where the decisions are made shifts from the European level to the, from the supranational level uh, to an intergovernmental level and where Paris and Berlin are particularly important. And uh, the key moment really uh, for us and I, I think in many analyses of the crisis as well is October uh, 2010 when President Sarkozy and Chancellor Merkel after the walk on the beach in the Normandy seaside uh, town of Deauville um, came up with a solution that represented a balance between a French position and a German position, a trade-off between them that was actually uniquely damaging. And uh, the French side of this was an argument that the fiscal rules should be softened or watered down, that shouldn't be applied so strictly. And the German side of it was the emphasis on the principle of liability uh, so that the banks that had engaged in risky lending to sovereigns should be made to bear the cost of that, but not immediately. Uh, there was a delay to the, the, the cost, and it's partly that, that mechanism that leads to the contagion where what had been originally simply a Greek crisis then becomes a general European crisis. So we thought that that, that moment in uh, Deauville is, um, is really critical. Uh, but other moments as well, uh, Mario Draghi's uh, uh, big London speech in July 2012 is also preceded by a lot of Franco-German discussions, the approach to how to deal with Cyprus banks, <coughs> another turning point, or in the negotiations uh, about Brexit, um, in this year, uh, you see the same kind of constellation. So that's, that's the, the key perception. Um, the analysis is really split into two, two parts. Uh, Marcus is going to talk in more detail about it, but uh, one, uh, both parts are actually concerned with the incompleteness of the Maastricht arrangements, um, but one is to do with uh, the fiscal stability uh, and its interplay with monetary stability. And the second is the issue of 
what was done or not done in Maastricht about financial stability, because the original Maastricht Treaty in the, in the, in the drafts that were originally prepared, uh, the ECB was supposed to do financial supervision, uh, but those drafts were modified in the course of the negotiations and the uh, financial stability was essentially left out of the, this original um, mandate, but with a, with a kind of odd escape clause that makes the current uh, regime possible. Um, so um, France and Germany, um, uh, are the differences between them absolutely fixed? Um, you know, we think about uh, Germany in particular as <coughs> concerned with the application of rules and uh, the kind of caricature of the German position is an obsession uh, with, with rules, looking at rules all the time, uh, whereas France is uh, concerned with getting the state to act, um, not particularly <coughs> concerned with rules, but uh, getting out of a bad situation. And it might be, and many people make this kind of case, that this is just an eternal contrast because France has had a long tradition of centralization and uh, Germany has been, with the exception of uh, 12, 13 disastrous years from 33 to 1945, a federal country. Um, and if you're a federation like the United States or Switzerland, like the Federal Republic of Germany, you really need strict rules in order to make a federation work. Um, but actually, that's where the historical element comes in. Um, we think that uh, if you look back in time, uh, you can see that this wasn't always the case. And the uh, German concern with rules as the basis for certainty in economic life it wasn't always there. In the 19th century, if you looked at this in the 19th century, it would be a quite different story because Germany was above all the country of state initiatives and of Bismarck and of managing tariffs and cartels and state policy to develop particular industries. It goes back even further uh, to Frederick the Great. And France was the country of classic economic liberalism. Uh, it was the country that obviously gave you the word laissez-faire. Um, it was the country of Bastia, of uh, Sai, uh, later on in the 19th century of Laura Beaulieu, uh, these great, great liberal thinkers, uh, liberal in the European sense. Um, uh, so something happened uh, that changed this in the uh, 1930s and 1940s. The extent of the political, economic, social, moral disaster of National Socialism and then the, the war and the collaboration regimes uh, changed outlooks really dramatically uh, because um, the story is that the German economists and legal thinkers who looked at what had given rise to national socialism, what had given rise to the, the destructive, pernicious uh, rule of Hitler uh, was the absence of universal laws. Uh, so the state could be arbitrary, and uh, Willkür is a word in German, arbitrariness, that above all, 
everybody wanted to avoid. So lay down fixed rules so that the state can't unilaterally decide in favor of one group or another group and uh, play the, the, the balance of opinion. Um, and so instead of this state tradition in Germany, uh, you got uh, in its m most uh, uh, characteristic form uh, the theories of auto-liberalism. Um, but having said that, I mean, this is not just a German development. If you look, for instance, in Italy, you can see the same kind of thing that uh, somebody like uh, Luigi Einaudi really does exactly this, uh, to develop out of the lessons of, of the fascist dictatorship um, a firm adherence to the principle of rule-bound conduct. Um, and France, um, what goes on in France? Because France has also had a great catastrophe, uh, but in France, it's really the other way around. The people in France blame austerity politics and classical economic liberalism for the malaise of France, because in the 1930s, they'd had deflation for a long, long time. The Prime Minister, Pierre Laval, who supervised this process, uh, what was called Laval's super deflation, was also the man who later became the collaborator, the principal collaborator with Hitler. Um, uh, but Laval's deflation meant cutting the fiscal uh, spending. In the 1930s, um, almost all the discretionary spending that could easily be cut was military spending. And so the argument was that cutting the spending had made France vulnerable. The steel industry wasn't equipped to supply the armaments. Everything was vulnerable. And so classical liberalism had led to the defeat of France in 1914. What France needed was more action by the state in order to get into a higher growth environment. Um, so we use this historical example, I think in part because it's, it's, it's powerful in explaining how we got to where we are. Uh, but it also gives us, I think, a moment of hope or a moment of optimism in a world that is, after all, pretty gloomy. Um, because if you think of the current crisis in Europe, it's not just not any longer simply a debt crisis, but it's also a security crisis in the wake of the invasion of Crimea, the fighting in eastern Ukraine. It's a security crisis in the Middle East. The Syrian story is just intensifying in a, in a deeply terrifying way. Um, it's a refugee crisis, but it raises questions about Europe's energy dependence. Um, so there are multiple, multiple crises, ter terrorist crises. There are multiple crises. And uh, the experience, I think, of history is that it's in this world of really fundamental crisis that you can rethink things and start to think of what brings Europe um, uh, to, together again. And uh, this is the, the sketch of what we're, we're going to, to develop. Um, and Marcus, I think, is going to go into the details of what characterizes the German view, the French view, discretion versus rules, solidarity versus liability, liquidity versus solvency, Keynesianism versus austerity. But I'll pass to Marcus then. Thanks a lot, Harold. So I will actually then talk about this. We start out with the ghost of Maastricht, things which were already present during the Maastricht negotiations very much. And as Harold said, 
I will focus in a very stylized way French versus German. That's why that's in red quotation marks, um, the French and the German. And it will also be stylized in a sense that I will make things which in reality are very gray or make it black and white, just to crystallize the differences. Of course, in reality, nothing is so black and white. It's a little bit like a la Max Weber using ideal types rather than you know going very close to reality and making it more gray. So the first thing I would like to talk about is the first dimension is French discretion and versus German rule, ex-ante rules. And actually, if you think about it, it is actually a little bit more nuanced than just simply discretion versus rules. So the intention is, I mean, essentially you have discretion, very active management, just manage the current crisis, while the Germans are always worried, you know, if you're so active all the time, then you actually might cause a future crisis. So it's very much the focus on the current crisis from a French perspective, getting out of it before it becomes really spirals out of control, while the Germans <coughs> emphasis on you know, not making a rule or making some the environment uh, fertile for a future crisis. So instead of having these active managements, the, the Germans would say, you all these ad hoc measures, that's ad hocery, and they prefer more an autonomous rule-driven framework which does it I mean, automatically. But if you think about it, the Germans commit to rules, but the French, they don't only want discretion. They're also willing to commit to certain things. And we call this a straight commitment. It's just a different way of thinking. In certain dimensions, the French attitude commits very, very powerfully. And then they say, OK, because we commit so powerfully to it, it actually helps us to get out of the current crisis. So you commit the future in order to fix the current crisis. While the German thing is much more about safety valves or escape valves. And let me give you specific examples what I mean by, <clears throat> in certain dimensions, from a French perspective, you commit very, very strongly. And there are two very prominent examples. One is that the commitment that the government should never default. And the idea is if you commit as a government never to default, the market will give you a lower interest rate and it will help you to grow out of the current crisis. <coughs> While, you know, if the German thing, if the debt overhang problem is huge, you might be open to a debt restructuring. We saw this Deauville playing out, where essentially the Germans were pushing for PSI, uh, and uh, the, the French side reluctantly giving in. Another example is with respect to the international economics. So the commitment for a currency pack, or the commitment not to specify any exit rules for in a currency union, that all came from the French side. It says for these currency aspects, you commit very, very powerfully. But this requires then that you actively manage the other dimensions. So in some dimensions, you commit very, very powerfully. In other dimensions, you're forced then to active, actively manage it. And that's, you know, you manage the capital <coughs> flows, for example. While in general, you know, German philosophy is much more open to floating exchange rates, and then you don't have to manage the capital flows so much. So in the language of Mandel Fleming's uh, trilemma, if you have this trilemma here, you can pick essentially two corners, and both of them will pick, you know, you want an autonomous monetary policy, but the France would pick much more fixed exchange rate, stable exchange rate is much more important than free capital flows, while Germany would pick much more free capital flows over you know, managing, uh, keeping uh, a fixed exchange rate. So there's a different attitude, and you can see what we wanted to get across is that it's not just discretion versus rules, it's a little bit more subtle. Certain dimensions you commit very strongly, but then you have a lot of discretion and active management in other dimensions. The second 
difference is on solidarity versus liability, the German liability principle or Haftungsprinzip. The, German, the French are very open to a fiscal union uh, while the, the Germans are pushing the Nobelart clause or some sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, some insolvency procedure. When there was a debate on the euro bonds with joint liability, uh, the French were very open at pushing for it. The Germans were vehemently against it. So you see there's a huge difference between the two things. And this solidarity versus liability that you can't separate the control from being liable. The, the entity which has the control over something is also liable for it. You never want to separate these two things. It's a different uh, attitude. And this is also connected to the, the third dimension, which is on liquidity versus solvency. Whenever there is some uncertainty, and it's always the case, whether we have a liquidity situation or a solvency situation, the French side will tend to it, it's a liquidity situation, while the German side tends to it, it's a solvency situation. And the way you should handle this is very different. If it's a liquidity situation, you should help out. It's a temporary problem. And then you fix it. And you make sure by helping out, it doesn't morph the liquidity problem. Temporary problem does not morph into a solvency problem. From a German perspective, you're just throwing good money after bad money. So it's, it's a solvency problem. You don't want to throw good money after bad money. And I think it played out in, in the crisis very well. And one way. Well, it's clearly a liquidity problem if you're in a world with multiple equilibria. And here I have essentially a little diagram which shows you know, supply is a vertical line and the demand is an inverted S-shape. And you have three equilibria. And let's just focus. The good one is the high price equilibrium. The bad one is the bad price equilibrium. And nothing has to change except showing a big bazooka. And you might be jumping to the good equilibrium. And uh, Harold mentioned these watershed moments we discuss in the book. And one of these watershed moments was Mario Draghi's uh, London speech. And that's a, you would say that's a classic case where there was a multiple equilibrium. This was the case when you know, he made a big speech that he will do whatever it takes, or the ECB will do whatever it takes to save the euro. And we discussed in the book very detailed why was this speech so powerful. And there are many reasons why this speech was so powerful. Of course, he had a very good understanding of the markets. With the momentum changes, many financial traders would be caught, and they will be forced to get out of their positions. But also, it was important that the speech was vague. So it was very difficult to attack it. So essentially, he made the speech, and then only Three months later, it was clear, or two months later, it was clear what actually the, the measures would be, what OMT, how would it would look like. So nobody could really attack it right away, go to the legal court right away to attack it. So in many dimensions, it was a very clever speech on hands by, I think it's a historical speech, and uh, when we entered history books. But what I wanted to mention here is that there was not a single euro spent in the OMT program and had these powerful implications of bringing the yields down, which is more like a multiple equilibrium story. That's essentially one example. Later we'll come to another example where actually it's more a solvency component uh, showing up and uh, I, when I come to the financial side. And of course, you can have multiple equilibria. Often you don't have the demand curve nicely S-shaped, and you have all this. You might have only this different demand curve, which is less extreme an S. Uh, and then in the case, if you have a shock, then it might lead to dramatic changes in prices. With multiple equilibria, you don't need a fundamental shock at all. 
Just you have to believe, people have to believe in jumping in your equilibrium, but nothing fundamentally changed. You don't have to put a single euro in with amplification and spirals. You have to put some money in, but it might be a positive payoff. The fourth <laughs> dimension uh, we outline in the book, in the ghost of Maastricht part of the book, is this Keynesian stimulus versus austerity and reform effort. There are two dimensions, I think, which I uh, would like to emphasize here. From a Keynesian perspective, the output gap is most of the time, it's, you know, you underperform and you want to go back to the potential. Okay. From a German perspective, you can have excessive credit growth and you overshoot, and then you have to have some correcting period and something has to correct. And there's a second difference. The difference is when you should do reforms. In the Keynesian framework, you do the reforms in boom times, in good times. Indeed, actually, when you hit the zero lower bound, doing reforms and productivity enhancement is counterproductive. So you never want to do it in, in, in bad times. The German side emphasizes much more the political economy aspects, saying you cannot do reforms in good times. You actually can only do it in crisis times. You have to use a crisis to do reforms. Otherwise, you'd never do any reforms. And that's essentially focusing on the political economy aspects or the TINA principle. If you're in a situation where there's no alternative, there's no alternative like TINA, then you can push through the reforms. And that's a very different emphasis when you should do the reforms. Should you use this crisis or should we just you know, calm things down in order to stimulate demand by calming things down to get out of it? And that's, I think, another dimension where both sides differ. But there's a lot of debate, of course, in the media, especially on the fourth point. Now, these were all the aspects on uh, the Maastricht Ghost, which is very much about fiscal aspects and how it interplays with monetary uh, stability aspects or price stability aspects. Things which were not put so much in the Maastricht Treaty, even though it was initially in it and then removed, was the financial stability aspects. And as Harold mentioned, we call this the Maastricht stepchild. And why was it not seen as it has to be part of the currency union and forced into the thing. And we think it's for three reasons. One is that the financial sector in the early 90s when Maastricht was negotiated was much, much smaller and much less fragile in a sense. <coughs> also because the funding side was very different. It was much less reliant on wholesale funding and cross-border funding compared to what it is later on. And then the second thing is all these liquidity spirals, fire cells, spillovers, systemic risk, this was very, very prominent in the Southeast Asia crisis, but this happened after Maastricht was already concluded. So with the Southeast Asia crisis, I think people became much more aware uh, that there are significant crises. Not to say that there were no crises before, but the Southeast Asia crisis, I think the spillover effects were much more dramatic uh, from you know, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, and so forth, to, uh, to Russia and Brazil, and so forth. And the third element is that, of course, Japan's bubble charts burst in the early 90s, and all the disinflation, deflationary pressure uh, was not so absorbed at this stage. Now, let me come back to this liquidity and solvency thing we talked about earlier. Of course, liquidity and solvency shows up for governments, but it also shows up for the financial sector, and that's why I mention it here again. When you decide, you know, is it a liquidity problem or a solvency problem, and should we intervene? So in multiple equilibria, it's obvious. If you know it's a multiple equilibrium problem, which is hard to identify, but if it is one, you just need a big bazooka and you jump to the good equilibrium, but you don't need any resources. 
If it's an amplification story, then you need some resources, and you have to make a judgment. Should I put some euros in in order to get some benefits from that? And you have to decide, you know, is the expected net present value from this bailout is it positive or not? But the net present value of a bailout is the present value of the bailout minus the present value of no bailout. And the present value of no bailout depends very much how much do you think, how much damage will it cause if some entity is going under. So what's the contagion, the systemic risk component uh, when there's no bailout? And there's also a fundamental difference and which played out especially in the Cyprus crisis where the German side said, okay, you know, Cyprus cannot be so systemic, and the other side said, okay, oh, there could be a systemic event and it spills over like in Deauville again and it will cause huge damage across all of Europe, and Cyprus is small, while the German side still vividly remembers somebody telling me in the finance ministry, oh, if Cyprus is uh, systemic, then everything is systemic. If we have to bail out Russian oligarchs <coughs> with European tax money, then you know the no bailout clause is gone. It has no meaning whatsoever. And this was another watershed moment. Why we call this a watershed moment? Because it led to a radical shift away from a bailout to a more bail-in uh, philosophy. And of course, a lot of this regulatory framework for bailing in banks was started with, with Cyprus. And what we also emphasize in the book, the importance of firewalls. If you do bailouts, how important the firewalls aspect is. And perhaps in a discussion, we'll come back, the current discussion on Italian banks and things, how the bailout rule is playing out and changing things as we speak. Now, the other aspect uh, which was very prominently discussed is this diabolic loop or this doom loop between sovereign risk and banking risk. And there are two diabolic loops. One is if the sovereign risk is low, is high, the sovereign debt is worth less, then the bank's assets are worth less and equity is low, the banks are undercapitalized, so the probability of a bailout is higher. That makes actually the sovereign debt more risky, and that actually feeds on each other, and this connects the sovereign risk with the banking risk. The second diabolic loop is that if the banks, because the sovereign debt is worth less, if the banks are undercapitalized, they also lend less to the real economy. And if they lend less to the real economy, then the economic growth is going down, and with it, the tax revenue for the government is going down, which then hurts the sovereign again. The sovereign risk goes up, and then it hurts, goes back to the bank, and then they lend less. So there are two diabolic loops actually floating around. And there's also a different attitude how to deal with that. So you should you have, um, you know, how should you deal with that? Should you have some risk weights that the banks have to some extra equity on the side uh, in order to make sure that you know if the sovereign is defaulting, but then you have uh, enough extra equity cushion on the bank side? So the, the French view, or I would say the peripheral view, is more, more or less, that's an easy fix. We never default to sovereign debt, so we don't need any safety cushion for that. We don't need any risk weights. And that's essentially, again, the straitjacket commitment I was talking earlier. You say, we never default to sovereign debt, so we don't need any risk weights. And indeed, we can actually use our banks as a hostage to signal to the market that we will never default, because the banks will absorb this uh, sovereign debt to a large extent. And if we ever were to default on the sovereign debt, then actually the sovereign debt would destroy our banking system and with it the whole economy. So default would be so costly that it, we would never do it. Okay, that's one thing. And then you don't want any risk weights. You just want to stuff your banks full with sovereign debt. And that's as a commitment device. 
not to default on it. The other thing is you say, oh no, in certain extreme circumstances, in certain tail events, you want to have a safety valve because you don't have the exchange rate as a safety valve anymore. So then you need risk weights and the banks have to have some you know, special equity on it. And that's, then you use the banks as an insurance provider. Again, this is the different attitudes here playing out. And of course, it's the current debate on this. So let me just say, of course, in the French view, again, as I mentioned earlier, the interest rate will be lower and there's a chance to get out of the crisis. But it's a little bit like a doubling up strategy. If it still then goes wrong, then you're really in deep trouble. Okay? So you can grow out of it if things calm down and you have a low interest rate and it helps to get out. But if you don't grow out, then you're really in deep trouble. Okay? And actually, because of the second diabolic loop, uh, it might make, you might be in deep troubles more likely than you think uh, if you wouldn't have done that. Now let me go to two things. So one is you, you would like to have, from the French perspective, a safe asset. You never default on it. On the other hand, from you know, the German or IMF or Anglo-American perspective, so we also talk in the book about you know, the IMF, and there's the ECB chapter, an IMF chapter, and an Anglo-American chapter. <coughs> They're like, the, you know, once you have a huge debt overhang, you have the safety valve of some sort of debt restructuring. And that's something, how would you, you have, can you square essentially this circle? The other thing is, at the moment you have one country or a few countries in the core providing essentially a safe asset. So in particular, the German Bund is providing a safe asset. So the question is, how can you solve these two challenges in a way you know, where you satisfy both philosophies, and nevertheless, <clears throat> you have an arrangement where you have a safe asset, which is not only provided by the core, but also by the periphery. And that's what uh, we proposed the Neuronomics Group in 2011, and now we've worked out all the details, the implementation details. That's what the, you know, what the SPs are, the European Safe Bond. And the way this works, essentially, there will be an entity, can be a private entity or public entity, buying up the sovereign bonds, up to 60% of GDP of all the 19 countries. So you have a pool of sovereign bonds. And then you issue a senior bond and a junior bond. There's no joint liability in any case. It's just an entity buying up you know, up to 60% of GDP of the sovereign bonds, and then issues a senior bond and a junior bond. And now, let's assume it will be the case that the crisis becomes more severe, then you don't have cross-border capital flows from the periphery into the core. Now you have, you have capital flows from the junior bond to the senior bond. But both are European bonds. So they're not cross-border anymore. Okay? They're both European bonds, and you switch off essentially these cross-border flows. The other advantage is that, of course, you diversify by pooling the whole thing that if the banks hold the ESPs, and the banks need some safe asset to invest in something in, so they can't just all invest in the German bonds and put risk weights on all the peripheral debt, and they all would go in the German bond. That actually would not be fair. So you have to give them a European alternative. So the ESPs would be the European alternative. The junior bond then would be held outside. Then you would switch off this diabolic loop I mentioned earlier. So it has two advantages, this aspect. One is this flight to safety would not go across borders anymore. It would go from the junior bond to senior bond, and they're both European bonds. <coughs> and the second thing is you would actually switch off this diabolic loop between the banking and the sovereign risk. <coughs> so let me just summarize with a concluding uh, slide. What the book 
really tries to say is that facts, interest matter, but ideas matter a lot too. So it's not only about interests and incentives, like we economists always do, but the ideas really matter a lot. There was a major power shift in 2010. It moved much more from a supranational to an intergovernment arrangement. That's when the EFSF was established. That's when the decision of bringing the IMF into the picture was made. There was a major change in European politics. We also argue that the Deauville was a second, in October 2010, was a second power shift, where essentially the interest rates, initially the crisis was in Ireland and then in Greece, and then it spread over to other peripheral countries. <coughs> and from then onwards, it was the case that every country had to be careful what to say, every politician what to say, in order to make sure the yield is not jumping up. So this changed dramatically what you can propose and what you can push for, because uh, you know, you're always concerned that the yield might jump up, and this constrains you dramatically. We argue in the book there's a Rhine divide, but it's more broadly. It's not just Germany and France, but we just picked these two countries uh, because of the power shift to some extent, but also <coughs> because it just sim simplifies. You know, it's, there's a north and a south perspective. We talked about certain aspects which were very prominent in the Maastricht Treaty and other things which were not so prominent on financial stability or were taken out of the Maastricht Treaty, in particular the spillover effects and the contagion effects. And then we have numerous proposals in the book. Uh, one is the ESPIS I mentioned. We talk about firewalls, we talk about an idea about raise away from the bottom, uh, things that we should probably can raise uh, in the discussion. Thanks again. Thank you very much. And Marco. I forgot to mention Ronaldo, but... Uh, <laughs> we can pick it up <laughs> okay. in the discussion, yes, don't worry. <laughs> Marco. Okay, thank you. I'm not wired, so I have to use the... Yes, please. Um, can you hear? Okay, okay great. Um, thank you very much. I think I have some slides also. Okay, let me say, first of all, we meetings like this, I always uh, test a bit the... Um, I mean, there is, an, 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 I think, a nice paper um, by Thomas Schelling, uh, using game theoretic uh, uh, arguments on why people don't sit in the first rows. Uh, so this seemed to be, uh, you know, apply perfectly. Um, okay, le let me say first of all that this is a very enjoyable book to read. It is enjoyable as an to read as an economist, um, as a policymaker, not always enjoyable to read as a EU official. Uh, I'll come to that uh, uh, in, uh, in a second. Actually, it is a, a bit painful, as, as, especially as a commission official. <laughs> Um, and by the way, the usual caveat here applies. If you detect something particularly interesting, what I say, which is at odds with the commission positions, are just attributed to an outburst of enthusiasm on my part, uh, rather than to the institution. Um, now, um, okay, I think, the, I think the best part of the book, in my view, is, um, is you know, what... Uh, uh, Harold and um, Marcus have emphasized this, uh, you know, description uh, and analysis, deep analysis uh, of the uh, Franco-German uh, divide. I think this is uh, the, the historical roots, uh, the, uh, you know, the ideological um, underpinnings of this. I think is is fascinating, um, and uh, uh, it is fascinating because. Uh, um, I mean, having lived through the crisis, uh, through the management of crisis myself, uh, it allows to provide a, a coherent uh, um, conceptual underpinning of what we have gone through. 
And this is, uh, I, dip, uh, I, I digged out uh, uh, this slide here, which actually presented, uh, if I remember well, in an event in Bruegel a couple of years ago, uh, when we discussed the management of the crisis. And there, in a more of an empirical fashion, uh, based on my experience, uh, um, highlighted how it was you know, difficult to get to the, and without putting names on the slide, but if you look, uh, basically, what you have there, on the red side, on the on the blue side, you can you can recognize uh, the uh, the German uh, and the uh, the German on the blue and the French on the um, on the red side. So this is uh, uh, and many of these uh, divides here are well conceptualized uh, uh, in the, in the book and and so the battle of ideas uh, uh, goes across uh, some of these um, these elements. Uh, in certain cases, I think uh, uh, certain of these devices are not fully explored uh, uh, in the book. Um, others, uh, yes, for instance, I think there is less, uh, if you look through this, uh, um, the Euro area versus European Union, uh, I think this is something that has emerged uh, in the, uh, let's say, 19 versus now 27 slash 28 as, uh, as an approach, I think is, uh, is important. I think this, uh, there is a secondary uh, law versus, versus treaty change when you come to the institutional um, uh, uh, perspective, but many of the others actually you can find them in the book, and it, it, it clearly explains very nicely the, um, and it, it, is, uh, it is very good, I mean, it provides um, important insights, uh, um, uh, referring also to, the, to what uh, uh, was said in the, at, at, at the very beginning. Um, the experience uh, during the crisis is also that, um, and here one first question one can have on the book, is it a battle of ideas or, the, or a battle of ideologies? Sometimes the perception is that the hardening oppositions during the crisis have shifted ideas into ideologies. Mm? Um, ideas, something you can confront and you can change your idea. Ideology, they become frozen. Hmm? So it's a set of ideas in a, in a uh, you know, coherent conceptual framework, but become very difficult to challenge. Hmm? So the perception sometimes is that uh, ideas have shifted into, the, into ideologies, and this is uh, clearly very, very difficult to, uh, uh, to preach. Ideas versus uh, interests. Um, now, uh, I think the divide that we see now clearly have uh, these uh, long uh, historical institutional perspectives also. I mean, there was what emphasized uh, the establishment of the German federal state after World War II, uh, where it was an interest of the, uh, you know, of the allies to have uh, a not very powerful center there, not to avoid, uh, you know, uh, to avoid repetition of uh, previous uh, very unfortunate uh, uh, historical uh, experiences and, and experiments. Um, but they have uh, these uh, differences, they have heightened during the EMU period. Not only during the crisis, but actually during the first, the, e the good years before the crisis. What you, what you find here is that uh, um, there was actually differences of preferences which, became, which, which came to the fore 
a bit in an uh, implicit way during the crisis and then jumped up during the, uh, mm, during the crisis itself. So here what you have is that especially take on the, uh, the, the graph on the left hand side uh, uh, here is uh, tradables versus non-tradables. Mm? Um, what happened basically during the, during the, the good years of, of EMU is that Germany became more intensive in tradables and the peripheral countries became more intensive in non-tradables. Mm? This affected the popular perception and the social preferences uh, of, the, uh, of the countries. So becoming more intensive in tradables implied also that the value of competitiveness came you know, to the fore as, um, as an important, uh, very important uh, element. And since it lasted for quite a while, I mean, the first, the first 10 years, it affected the social and political preferences of the, uh, of the countries. Mm. The reform anesthesia that, you had, that we had in the first 10 years of EMU, where everything seemed to fall into place nicely, uh, because you had the uh, increased asset ac uh, access to credit, falling risk premium, and you know the um, growth uh, you know coming as um, you know manna from heaven without uh, without the reformed, without the reforms, uh, which you know affected positively there the um, this, the peripheral countries, uh, actually led to a divergence of preferences, uh, which was pretty uh, pretty shocking actually running against what we, I mean, naively thought at the beginning of the uh, uh, Euro uh, experience, which was that, uh, you know, by sharing monetary sovereignty, being this a key essential component of um, uh, sovereignty, that the rest would then follow, you know, all, almost by itself. It did not happen. Actually, the opposite, uh, the opposite happened, and you see it, uh, in a sense, in this, uh, in this graph here. Now, the, um, here, the painful part on, uh, on the uh, European institutions, and I mean, you are very critical uh, in the book, um, criticizing the, 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 I mean, the absence of, uh, of European institutions, European Commission uh, in particular. Uh, I think one has to acknowledge that indeed there was a very um, clear, palpable uh, shift towards uh, an intergovernmental mode, Chefzage. Uh, that was, uh, I mean, that's why the European Council and the leaders uh, uh, took over the management of the crisis. You know, Sarkozy clearly very, very um, uh, prominently during his uh, presidency, um, <laughs> as well as uh, throughout the whole period. Uh, Chancellor uh, Merkel. Was the commission absent uh, during, the, uh, during the crisis? I, I, I think I, uh, it, would, it is too harsh a conclusion. Uh, I mean, if you take uh, the what, I mean, key moments during the crisis and, and the response to the crisis, uh, 2009, I mean, the coordination of the stimulus uh, package in the context of the G20, but coordinated here, uh, clearly, we did not have the tools to do the, the stimulus at the European level. Uh, that's what uh, the European budget is. But I think it was, uh, we were affected there at that moment to coordinate the national uh, stimulus and, we, and to adapt the rules in a way to, or the SGP in a way to make it uh, compatible 
with, uh, so without losing, let's say, the anchor, which was important uh, for Germany in particular, of, uh, uh, of the roots. The second point was uh, the establishment of the um, crisis management mechanism during the famous weekend uh, in, two, uh, in May 2010. Uh, it's a bit forgotten, not mentioned the, in the book, but the Commission came forward with the proposal of the EFSM, uh, not the little EFSM of 60 billion which remained after the, uh, the, the meeting of the Council, but with the initial proposal of actually basing the, 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 the full um, crisis response mechanism on the, on the EU budget, which so much more of, and, and in particular, the they say that the um, space um, under the, the ceiling uh, uh, of own resources, uh, which, which may, would have made the, uh, think the uh, response and the, and the crisis management mechanism much more of a community tool, I think, and personally much more effective because of the majority uh, voting rather than unanimity, which was then in, incorporated in the EFSF of the, in the you know, SPV of the, uh, uh, of the Council. So, indeed, intergovernment put aside, I think, a good proposal. Uh, we were left with something which was um, clearly effective, but more difficult uh, to manage. Uh, the Banking Union proposal uh, in 2012, and at the end of the, uh, of the, towards the end of the year, the blueprint for EMU deepening in 2012. True? The proposal of the blueprint were, you know, was you know, quickly put aside. Mm, countries did not want to hear uh, about that. But if you look then to the next reports, report of the, five, of the four presidents of Van Rompuy, the five presidents later, the logic and the, and, you know, the, basic, uh, the basic elements of the blueprint was actually uh, there in the, in the um, in the, in the following, in the following uh, big, big proposals. So yes, I think one has to acknowledge it was a difficult period for EU institutions. You know, um, uh, just uh, um, you know, put, putting it aside and say that it was uh, not uh, um, relevant, I think it was, uh, it, it is too, uh, I think probably too much of a shortcut. Clearly the commission suffered in this period. I mean, what we have, uh, as traditional role of the Commission within within the game, uh, within the EU, um, let's say the EU coordination. What you have, you have uh, the role of referee, classic uh, implementation of the rules. You have a role of consensus building, which in the period was somewhat uh, post Lisbon was somewhat uh, eroded by the uh, establishment of the President of the European Council. So this was more to bring the, the countries together, so consensus uh, building. Um, the promoter of EU integration, that's what we normally do. We had to acquire during the crisis a fourth role, which was uh, you know, allegedly uncomfortable, which was the agent of the Eurogroup. So basically the agent of the creditors. And here, uh, I think, from the initial uh, uh, first round of crisis uh, operating in the Eastern Europe, then within the, uh, the Euro area, this was a role which was uh, assigned to us. It was uncomfortable from the point of view of, uh, of the institutions, uh, uh, clearly, because one had to, in a sense, where we, you are pitched one part against, uh, against the other, usually the strong versus versus the weak in that, in that moment. And you know, many of the um, um, 
spots that we had, sometimes within the Troika, also in the discussion with the IMF, was the fact that you know, us, we had to care for, you know, for uh, you know, people within the family, uh, uh, within the EU family, not just uh, from, uh, from the outside uh, perspective. It's not by chance, as the book clearly stresses, that the ECB emerged as the key actor, it is the only federal, truly federal institution that we have in, in Europe, so it emerged clearly as, uh, as the, uh, the key actor um, in the crisis. Now, the uh, differences of opinion, the differences of ideas contributed to the ultima ratio uh, logic. I think it was uh, highlighted uh, uh, before and the ultima ratio runs like, uh, uh, basically like this. Um, you have different stages. Um, okay, the first stage is denial. You know, you remember at the beginning of the crisis, it's a subprime, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not, uh, nothing to do with us. Uh, it's an American problem. Then the crisis crossed the Atlantic. Uh, and then the issue is that, okay, it's, uh, it's a country by country put your house in order, this was the, uh, this was the dictum. Um, so correct fiscal profligacy in peripheral countries, that was the, the way to respond. Then the crisis spread, and uh, there is you know, some acknowledgement of a collective problem, but the response is too little, too late. So the initial grow, grow, uh, Greek loan facility is an example of, uh, of the response. Then eventually, when you stare into the abyss, then bold solutions uh, uh, are um, come to the fore. ESM, Banking Union, the whatever it takes of, uh, uh, of Mario Draghi. It is not the end. Oh, no. The end is that as soon as the situation improves, uh, there is backtracking. The example of uh, Banking Union in not, not you know, going ahead and, and crossing, the, crossing the river uh, is an example of backtracking. I, I put this, uh, which I think is in line also with what you describe uh, in the book, maybe with different, uh, with different words, because this describes somewhat the, let's say, the political economy uh, of, of reforms. But the, the final stage is important in the political economy, because it, if you do the experience that we have had, if instead of taking the Keynesian view and do the reforms, let's say, in good times, when you have the a larger cake to compensate the losers, and you do it under duress, lack of ownership implies often backtracking. So yes, you are pushed against the wall, and you have to make the reform, but reforms are not always, not always uh, let's say, durable, uh, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, not fully owned by the country, there is a risk of backtracking, and we have seen that uh, quite, uh, quite often uh, in the past. Now, uh, what is uh, here? What is um, the possible uh, um, shared narrative uh, on the crisis here? And you, you know, look at the end of the slides. I don't think the authors uh, uh, are brave enough to give us, uh, uh, you know, consistent, uh, a fully consistent view on uh, uh, on that. This is, uh, mm, you know, my own view. I think very much in line with some political economy perspective to what was uh, put out also at the, in, the CPR, uh, in the CPR reading of, of the crisis. I don't think the crisis was uh, essentially fiscal in origin. We, were, we, ha we, we had bad luck here because in a sense 
Greece tainted, where it was indeed a fiscal crisis, tainted the rest uh, of, the, uh, of the crisis. But I think the, it, it is more of the crisis, more of a sudden stop following capital misallocation in the previous years. This is a bit also in line with the, with the, gra uh, with the graph at the beginning that I showed on tradables and non-tradables. Uh, and, non <coughs> and the structural divergences in uh, uh, Fed divergences also in social and political uh, preferences and mistrust, I think, ensued. Uh, uh, um, and I think the uh, way forward here, and I think in uh, this, I think quite in line with the whole spirit of the book, I think is, uh, is a parallel process of risk reduction and risk sharing in a way that is manageable. I did not find fully in, but maybe I read that too quickly, uh, did not find fully in the, in, in the book uh, the authors coming forward with something that is a unified possible share uh, narrative uh, of the crisis. There are many triangles around in EMU. Uh, Marcus presented one. This is not uh, an, uh, uh, an incompatible triangle, so I'll come to that in a, in a second. Um, this is uh, um, another, another way of looking at the, uh, at the uh, response in the crisis, uh, what, what France and Germany emphasize uh, here. Basically, you have the tri triptych of uh, the structural reforms, monetary policy, and, and fiscal policy. And you can see that uh, the, um, basically, the, uh, in, no, in more normal times, let's say, the German view of, uh, let's say, letting fiscal policy on um, more or less an automatic pilot uh, with letting automatic stabilizers play maybe something that one should, uh, um, I think, consider. Uh, I think shifting back into fine-tuning does not seem to be, uh, uh, to be a, good, a good idea. <coughs> but then when you come to exceptional times, then the French view is uh, you know, possibly more, uh, more relevant. And here, you, one has to consider, uh, let's say, not only monetary policy, but also fiscal policy to provide the right, uh, um, I mean, the right response. Um, so the, one can uh, uh, look at the German perspective and the French perspective uh, in, let's say, management of uh, policies in more normal times and what is uh, in, exceptional, uh, in exceptional times. I mean, if you take the German view across the board, then you may end up with Keynes on its head. Uh, basically, we may be fine in the long term, but we do not survive the short one. Um, so uh, I think the, uh, this element here is, uh, is, an, is an important one. If you come to the G20 with a three-pronged strategy, we have actually, we have the full triangle. Huh? Why does the G20 emphasizes the, emphasize the, uh, um, the three-pronged strategy so using the three, the three poles? Okay. In part because of one has to reconcile different interests, uh, and uh, so the, uh, coming with the three is, uh, helps a bit uh, everybody. But it's also because we are probably now, let's say, in a new exceptional normality with the risk of uh, being trapped in a low growth, uh, you know, low inflation uh, uh, situation in which indeed uh, I think you need uh, the, three, the three elements uh, at, uh, at play. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, um, uh, coming quickly to the uh, to the to the conclusion. I mean, on how to bridge the differences. I think here the uh, an economic logic and a political economy logic to address transition. I think for three points. The first one is uh, 
Um, uh, a central risk sharing tool, a fiscal capacity, uh, I think gives more legitimacy to enforce, to enforce also rules at the national level of the SGP. So the two are, in no, uh, they are not in opposition, but they, they reinforce each other. I think private risk sharing via banking union and capital markets union, in a sense, allows less fiscal uh, risk sharing. So those who, like Germany, who are um, who fear uh, fiscal resharing, I think should give uh, should be more generous when we come to completing banking union and capital markets union. Because I mean, you have, uh, uh, as studies have shown, you have more private risk sharing uh, on that front. And examples of things I think of these days. More you do public uh, fiscal risk sharing and a fiscal capacity that prevents, I think, overburdening of the uh, ECB, so allows the ECB to come back to more, let's say, more quickly to orthodoxy. Okay, this was my thing, but I don't have time to go into this. Let me finish uh, with uh, um, with uh, two uh, slides. You um, quote in the book nicely the Schwartz, uh, uh, Andre Schwartz. Uh, a um, definition of compromise, which is precisely what um, uh, what we are facing now. By the way, it was uh, quoted here from a quote uh, of Ashoka Modi in a Bruegel paper. So, give uh, um, uh, credit to Bruegel also. So, basically, a compromise, not in, sen in the sense of genuinely converging, but actually, um, you know, going out of the meeting and being able to say, you know, I won and pursue your own initial line of thinking. This is typical of intergovernmentalism. The community method, when you have to decide with majority voting, forces you into the genuine compromise, most of the time. Uh, intergovernmentalism, since basically you need to have unanimity, everybody has to, to have a you know, consensus right table, I think is subject to the curse of Schwartz. So, you know, going back to something more, uh, um, you know, higher normality here, I think would help to avoid this. My final uh, questions here um, are, are three. The first one is German economic thinking behind Euro integration different from that behind domestic federalism? I think it is a genuine question because uh, sometimes one has the impression that uh, the German thinking applies when you come to EU decisions, but it does not apply when you come to German decisions. So bailing out of the banks uh, in the moment of, uh, uh, in the, in, during the first period of the crisis, uh, the Germ Germany be became very French. <coughs> then when you, com when you come then to, um, to decision at the Euro area level, then the German, the, the German thinking uh, prevails. So this, I think, is a okay, bit of a provocative question, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's a legitimate uh, one. The second point, the compromises uh, may not always be good. Uh, you may ha have the worst of all. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Deauville. I mean, Deauville, in a sense, undermined uh, uh, the rules on the one hand and uh, uh, you know, put us in uncharted waters on the, uh, on the other side. You may have other uh, examples in which uh, you know, compromises are actually, uh, actually not, uh, not, not, good, uh, uh, not good at all. Um, take uh, the, um, the case of uh, you know, the initial Greek uh, rescue uh, plan. Okay, Germany wanted to have with principal liability to restructure the debt. 
France uh, wanted to, you know, with solidarity to help the country, we ended up with a Greek loan facility which was, we rescued, but with a high interest rate. So there, in a sense, you married the two, but not in a virtuous way. Huh? Um, the second one is on, uh, is on, uh, uh, on banking union. Uh, here, you would want to have either, you want to shift from national bailout to European bail-in, but since you do not follow the, whole, uh, the full logic, you move to European bail-in, but, but without uh, the deposit guarantee and uh, with, let's say, weak, uh, um, or at least not full uh, uh, fiscal backstop. So there also, in a sense, you get to a compromise in which, uh, which is shaky and not, in not internally uh, coherent. My final question is on, on the SBIS, uh, actually. Uh, Marcus uh, uh, mentioned that, uh, his, uh, his proposal. And here, what would happen, in a sense, it looks like a, a nice idea, um, because it would, in a sense, it would marry the non-mutualized way following the German philosophy and address systemic risks following the, you know, the French philosophy. But it would require um, doing away with the current status of safe uh, sovereign bonds, which uh, uh, may uh, lead to uh, deep questions on the transition, uh, actually. So before you get to the, let's say, to the right equilibrium, you may be lost in wilderness uh, during, the, during the, uh, uh, the transition. Let me stop yeah, here. Thank you very been, much, uh, Marco. Um, you. In the time, maybe we can just open the floor and then yeah. we can if you don't mind. Uh, and Marion, would you like to take the floor first? And then Marco. Thank you very much. Um, can we get a. Yeah, we should get a microphone. <coughs> thank you. This was a fascinating presentation, and I look forward to reading the, the book. Marco noted that uh, the book underestimates a bit in his view the role of the European Commission. From the presentation, I have also the impression that it may underestimate uh, a bit the interaction between the political authorities uh, of Europe and the ECB. And ECB maybe comes out uh, as, a, as the only decisive player of course, it is a key decisive player, but maybe the interaction with the political authorities is lost uh, uh, a bit. Um, uh, I would like to provide uh, at least one example uh, of uh, cases in which uh, even the European Council and even the Eurozone Summit can act uh, uh, positively for serious compromises uh, which uh, facilitate the action of the ECB in the total uh, respect of the mutual respect of, <laughs> of, of, the, of the roles. Um, and by providing this example, maybe I can uh, refer to uh, another aspect of the battle of ideas which has not come to the surface yet, <laughs> that is uh, with uh, a Germany uh, always emphasizing the need to put one's house in order, often falling into the fallacy of composition, and uh, the French and others uh, pointing more to systemic uh, problems require, requiring systemic responsibilities. Um, 
die, um, die uh, the famous uh, whatever it takes speech of Draghi uh, is very deeply related to what the European Council and the Eurozone area did uh, before because uh, the question was posed, uh, why was Draghi's speech so powerful? But the question was not posed, why did the Draghi speech came at that particular moment after the first uh, months of Draghi's uh, um, action as president being extremely oakish, probably to gain credibility vis-a-vis -vis the German authorities and public opinion, but why does he come out in July with that uh, statement? Well, because uh, there had been a, a deep, tough <coughs> debate and negotiation uh, which brought in the Eurozone uh, summit of June 2012 to exactly a uh, logical uh, composition of the two needs to put uh, one's house in order, but also to accept that there were systemic responsibilities. <laughs> and what uh, the European, uh, the, the Euro Area Summit came to, interestingly, is exactly what would be later reflected in the structure of ONT, namely uh, the leaders say, we affirm our strong commitment to do what is necessary to ensure the financial stability of the euro, in particular by using the uh, existing uh, EFSF, uh, ESM instruments in a flexible and uh, of, uh, efficient manner in order to stabilize markets. This was uh, heretical until that moment in the German mindset but it became accepted unanimously, including by Germany. But why? Because it was then specified that these stabilization interventions could only take place for the virtuous one, which had or were putting their own house in order. That is, the countries uh, uh, totally respecting the uh, uh, country-specific recommendations, etc., etc. So it's clear that uh, <laughs> Uh, had Draghi made that statement before the political authorities of Europe had come to this uh, compromise, the German Chancellor and others might have publicly objected to the whatever it takes statement. After this agreement, of which of course Draghi was aware because he was there, uh, they couldn't because they had subscribed to this uh, statement. Um, and, uh, um, and then, uh, just a couple of months later, the OMT reflected exactly this uh, uh, formula. Uh, and the conclusion was then, of course, that even the highest uh, legal authorities, judiciary authorities of the EU uh, approved. So, um, I think it would be interesting to um, reflect uh, a bit more on, on this uh, interaction. Otherwise, it seems that we have in the system a, a deus ex machina, which is totally delinked from the labor and fatigue of the political authorities of Europe, 
and of uh, that other European institution, which is the Commission, but I believe that it is not always the case. Thank you. And Gunther? Yeah, th thank you very much for the uh, very interesting presentations. Um, just uh, two, three quick points. One, following up on what, what Mario Monti just said, um, I really think the OMT, the condition for the Draghi speech and the, the OMT speech was an agreement on banking union, basically. I mean, that was, uh, and, uh, and by the way, uh, Hermann von Rompuy uh, said this also publicly. Um, uh, I, ca I can dig out the quote for you. So, so I do think that this interaction is really uh, quite, quite central. But let me uh, come to, uh, to, uh, to my three points. The first is really ideas or interest. I mean, that's the, uh, to me, sort of in, in, in your book, the key question. And I'm perhaps more on the side of uh, uh, Marco, who I think, uh, if I may interpret him, uh, was a bit skeptical that it's the idea side. Um, uh, in the sense that he called you, you called it ideology, uh, and uh, uh, you also gave the nice example of uh, the German banks that that were bailed out uh, against sort of um, uh, uh, German ideas, um, uh, and so it, it seems to me that, and perhaps it's just a bias because I'm a trained economist that uh, sort of the interest side is, is 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 pretty pretty strong and pretty pretty dominant in all of this. Uh, my my second point is. Um, the term on uh, that you use, which is which you use quite quite often, uh, um, a shift towards intergovernmentalism, and I think it's a wrong description of what has happened, because um, we have not seen a shift of intergovernment towards intergovernmentalism because there was nothing to be shifted. What we did is we created new mechanisms, including the ESM. And I think it's an important distinction because what has happened in this crisis is not that there was already an agreement to form fiscal instruments, fiscal union instruments, and we shifted them from a federal uh, 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 communitarian method to an intergovernmental method. We created something new um, that was not there and that was arguably not part of the original Maastricht consensus. And that's why it was so painful uh, in, in, in this crisis to actually do this, because there was actually something new created, uh, which is fiscal risk sharing across, across countries, um, which was fundamentally rejected, uh, as you know, um, at the negotiations of, of Maastricht, and which was sort of the, the pillar stone. Yes, we get the euro, but there will never be any risk sharing. That was the way the euro was sold. And uh, Helmut Kohl defended it very strongly against major opposition, as you know, from uh, large parts of his own party. Um, I mean, he was, and it shows how, how powerful Helmut Kohl himself was, but, but he pushed it through against um, the will of, uh, uh, of uh, much of Germany's population, um, uh, based on the very strong statement there would never be risk sharing, but of course, in the end, it is needed in a monetary union, and that's why. Uh, it happened, but it happened in an intergovernmental way. So no shift towards intergovernmental, something new was created. Last point, um, uh, this discussion on the safe asset and you know, sticking out the neck, uh, what, what is needed now. Um, uh, it seems to me that um, you under-emphasize uh, the need for uh, real economic adjustment that is still very much uh, um, uh, unfinished. <laughs> Um, and where I, I think you, we, I would put much more emphasis on it. 
And um, on the financial stability side, I think we all agree um, that, that the banking union needs to be finished. And you know, I have my doubts that you really need the SBs to, to finish it. I think there are other ways of, of finishing banking union without SBs, um, with um, uh, fiscal backstops, appropriate fiscal backstops, and appropriate rules on the exposure to sovereign, sovereign debt. But that's a, a longer and other discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Gondrom. Would you like to respond to this uh, first yes. round of so, comments that we're taking? Okay. So thanks a lot to Marco for an excellent discussion. There are many points. Uh, let me just yeah. issue, raise some just of them. Sure. I like this distinction between ideas and ideology. I think what we're hoping to do with the book, to unfreeze some of the ideologies, so essentially crystallize what are the differences, and then we can have an open debate about it. And I think just understanding what is ideology, what are ideas, and how can exchange ideas, uh, I think that's what we're trying to do. About the tradables, focus on tradables, I think social preferences might have hardened, but Germany always was in favor of experts. I grew up and there was always this magic square, in a, and one of it was a balanced current account, the balanced uh, experts, but deep down there was always some pride, you know, if there's an expert surplus uh, going on. That's how Germany developed after the Second World War. Um, let me just, uh, I agree with you that you know, the backtracking, if, if the reforms are not owned, if there's no ownership, that's a, very, a big concern and one has to be very much aware of it. With regard to uh, Mario Monti's uh, intervention, <coughs> I, we very much agree, and in the book we mention it uh, to a large extent, that the summit in Brussels was key for Mario Draghi's speech. So without that, so this gave him the stimulus that he felt he can do it. And uh, so I, we totally agree with that. And we also go into the book into this. And uh, we didn't spell out so explicitly how close the OMT was to the agreement uh, of the Brussels summit in, in the summer of 2012. But we very explicit, you know, that he saw that he has an opening, and, and the, the Brussels summit was the key about this, and the banking union, and he, sent, and he sensed that there's a way he can move him ahead, but he has support by Wolfgang Schäuble and uh, Angela Merkel, and he called, actually, Wolfgang Schäuble subsequently and got support, and Angela Merkel took a little bit longer. Um, interest versus ideas, yes, uh, the Germans, that's also my... Marco Butti mentioning the Germans might be less consistent with their own principles inside of Germany. There's a, you know, there's a German bond, there's no Euro bond, so there is something. But it's, it's also if the idea is if you pass on the control to European level, then you can also do some joint liability. But you have to bring both always together. If its control is passed on, then you can also have more joint liability. But I would not be honest saying, oh, the Germans follow their own principles very clearly, but... Um, uh, that's the case, but it's it's a guiding uh, north star in a sense where you're pushing to. On uh, the shifts versus whether something new was created, yes, indeed, I think there is both. There are shifts of some existing things which shifted away, and something new was created. It could have been created by some community, by the Commission as well. So in this sense, we interpret shift uh, more broadly. I also think that the, the safe asset is not everything, and SPS will not solve everything, but essentially it solves two very critical points. One is this flight to safety, cross-border capital flows, and it solves the stability of the banks due to the diabolic loop 
uh, aspect. And I think these two things are very fundamental to, to fix. And that's one way very easily without a treaty change and very <coughs> operationally you can fix these things. Of course, there will be some oppositions on this dimension. Um, but I think that's, uh, in my view, something where Europe can show some action uh, and show to the population that doing something are going forward. So, I mean, just a couple of points to, 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 to go on with. I mean, we could obviously spend the whole morning discussing this, this, this wonderful uh, commentary. Um, but uh, I mean, one issue that I think uh, is, is, is crucial here is what exactly happened during the crisis, and is it right to describe it as a shift from the commission to the intergovernmental approach? Well, I mean, to some extent, part of the stuff that I think uh, Europe suffers from is, uh, you know, everything is discussed purely in European terms, and some of these issues uh, are really clearly everywhere that after a big financial crisis, a fiscal action comes to be at the center of things. And so if you don't have a European Union budget that is more than 1%, uh, then necessarily all the interest shifts on what the countries can do. And so you know, we're, we're not describing something that is necessarily a personal failure of uh, the, the uh, Commission, but it, it's uh, structurally given uh, by the aftermath of a, a <coughs> financial crisis. Um, and then uh, the, the emphasis on the central bank as the only player in town. Um, because the political process is very complicated and very broken, uh, is after all something that we have in the United States as well. So we come from there, and you know we also uh, had the peculiar issue that uh, Mr. Bernanke was really the, the, the person who rescues everything, and uh, or, uh, um, Janet Yellen, um, and uh, it's very very difficult because the Congress is is, is is fractious and problematical. So you know one shouldn't imagine that these issues are just European ones. Uh, they're, they're, they're uh, really um, more, more general. Um, and uh, then, uh, you know, it also, I think, is, is important uh, what the Commission does well and what Europe has done well historically <laughs> is to do things on the regulatory front. Uh, so competition policy, you know, obviously with Mr. Monti in the room, I mean, that's, that's, that's where the EU has, has been terrific. And, uh, where it's really important to, to go on with this, but this is not fiscal stuff, and so you know this is the the way that the crisis changed uh, things. Um, uh, the, the, there was a very interesting set of observations in all three of the the commentaries uh, on uh, whether Germany is a bit hypocritical or not, uh, and maybe that's a, a debate that should be more exposed. And I hope one of the things that our book does is to push that debate a little bit, uh, because Germany is really, when you look at it, uh, in a very unique uh, position, uh, not only because it's the, the largest economy, um, largest population, uh, but also because it's got in the constitution, in the uh, basic law that created the Federal Republic, in the preamble, uh, the discussion about a united Germany in a united Europe, 
in Article 23 of the Basic Law as, as reformulated after the unification, the commitment to European integration. And these are things that I think need to, need to be discussed and brought out. Um, and uh, I, I, I do think our, our book is, is uh, part of that exercise. And you know, then uh, the uh, final uh, suggestion of, of Mr. Burke is, is it right that we have this, this idea of a grand compromise because there are so many crises and it's given a different dimension to the discussion than in the purely debt phase of the euro crisis from 2010 to 2012. Um, and that really is the only chance of this kind of responsibility being realized, it seems to me. Marcos, some final thoughts? Uh, Yes, no, two points. Uh, one, okay, just uh, on the grand compromise. Uh, um, um, I think Mario knows better he has been in the room uh, uh, directly. Um, compromises across very different, different subjects uh, is difficult to process by the European Council uh, uh, in general. So you need to, let's say, to maintain the coherence within each part of the package. Uh, because trading across uh, completely different parts is, is, you know, is very difficult also because, I mean, the experience is that um, uh, European, I mean, let's say politicians in general, I mean, the, you, you can focus the mind on one thing. When you have, uh, I think, the, the, uh, focusing on too many different things at the same time, it is difficult to, from a even very practical viewpoint, to, to bring about. So the, uh, I think grand bargain, yes, but you need the, the little bargain within. That is, uh, that is important. Well, but, but can I just give an instance of this? I mean, it seems to me that you know, if, if you think of what's needed in terms of support for Greece or Italy, <coughs> if you say you need to support Greece because of some technical thing that's to do with the construct of the euro, then you lose the voters in the North European countries. If you say you need to support Greece and Italy uh, because they're at the forefront of the refugee issue, because they're important for security reasons, uh, then I think even the stupidest IFD supporter will understand something of that. Yes, no, I, 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 I tend to agree on that. When we come, nonetheless, to actually operationalize uh, uh, these things, yeah. uh, I mean, the yeah. fact that when you come to, let's say, the, the, the very latest developments on uh, Bratislava, yeah. in, in, in a logic of the grand bargain, one would have had the new public goods in, together with fixing the architecture of, of, the, of the euro you know, for good. That, the second part was not there. So, I mean, what I'm saying is that I think you have a, you have a certain box and uh, uh, it is sometimes difficult to fit everything in. Uh, one would wish that that is the case, but it's, the, it's, not, um, it's not easy uh, considering the way the, um, the institutions and the European Council uh, operate. No, I mean, my final question on the uh, is ECB, why uh, is the uh, only game uh, in town? Uh, okay, first of all, obviously, they have the big bazooka uh, at, at hand, so I mean, it's not, not difficult to conceal. Uh. Um, <laughs> I think there is, uh, uh, I, I emphasize the, um, let's say, the federal, more federal nature of the, of the institutions and the fact that they have a decision making, which is, uh, you know, very, very powerful, very effective. Mario pointed and Kuntran also the, to the underpinning of the political side explicitly or implicitly for doing uh, certain things, so there is this interplay. 
there is, a, there is another element, and, uh, which I think is not negligible, is that um, risk sharing by the uh, balance sheet of the ECB being less transparent and more difficult to perceive is easier to push through than doing it explicitly by uh, the national budgets. I think in the domestic debates, this is not a negligible point uh, in uh, why certain things are allowed by the ECB, but not allowed directly, uh, let's say, at the political level. Okay, well, thank you very much. I'm afraid this is all we have time for today. Uh, let me thank you for a very interesting presentation. I'm sure the book would do very well. And also thank Marco for his very pertinent uh, comments. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to be here in Brussels today and to participate here. We wish you all the success. And join, please join me in thanking the speakers for coming. Thank you.